This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. It's been a little bit of a break, hasn't it, Anthony? You've been uh, away for a while, back seeing your face on the other side of this lovely laptop screen. It doesn't look a, a day over. How old are you? Don't want to say, James. Don't want to say. <laughs> he, looks the, he looks the same as he did last year. But <laughs> this week, we're going to have um, an amazing guest coming up. Um, she is Emily Chappelle, and she is the first woman to have won the transcontinental race, which is 4,000 kilometers, 50,000 meters of climbing, goes from Belgium to Turkey or Greece, I think, and she did it in 13 days. She did that back in 2016. And since then, she has authored books. She has ridden various Tour de France's in the a week ahead of the men. Uh, last year, she visited uh, with Tour de France Femme. That's under the auspices of a uh, enterprise called Le Loop. But basically, she is she's kind of done it all. She's ridden it all. She is an ultra endurance cyclist extraordinaire. But she's also come up against some pretty hard times um, most recently in terms of her fitness and her pursuits. So that's coming up um, later in the show. But for now, just want to check back in with you, mate, because it has, as I say, been a while. You've had, I think you've had your hair cut. You obviously enjoyed a nice Christmas because you seem to have some new headphones. How's it all going? It's good. I'm looking at Emily's background and listening to you rallying off kind of her Palmares and CV. It just makes me feel massively unproductive for coming out of the Christmas period. Where I'm like, oh no, all I really done was watch Netflix, put on a few extra kilograms and yeah, turn the pedals a little bit. So you didn't do the Rafa 500? Come on, doesn't every cyclist do the Rafa 500, which is not something that I've ever done and I ever will do? Yeah, I'm not into that. They've done well, Rafa. How have they branded kilometers as their own thing? Like if you ride over the Christmas period, it's the Rafa Festa 500. That's a yeah. branding masterclass. <laughs> no, it is. Um, but fair play because, you know, it does get a lot of people out riding. So that's always a good thing. But frankly, I mean, I don't know what it's been like over... Actually, you're in Girona now, so it's probably been bliss. But you've been back in Ireland, I know. And over here, so now I'm in the West Country, which is near Wales. It rains a lot here. It has been raining cats dogs sheeps cows all that jazz and you know you know when you've got a bike and it's clean and you look outside and it's dirty is there a little bit of you that's just like i don't want to go out because i don't want to have to scrub up when i get back in now i hit the i hit the garage on the way home that's kind of my trick because ireland you know the stereotype of it rains every single day are we really starting a podcast here chatting about the weather we've lost 90 percent of our listeners <laughs> but uh, it rains a lot but a lot less than people think but the ground is wet a lot so the bike gets wrecked so kind of might go to and i'm sure you're gonna have every cycling geek going you're destroying the bearings but i just stopped into a topaz or a circle k on the way home and just blast it with the power hose and it comes up new that's kind of the downside of living in an apartment no back garden to actually properly clean your bike it's true and i've tried doing it in the shower it really doesn't work you can't get the whole thing in you take the wheels off you get oil all over the it does it's a terrible thing i'm with you on the jet wash they used to be where i used to live you know those uh, car wash garages which you're like this is absolutely a front for a money laundering operation there is no way that you've got this much business unless you are stuffing cocaine down into the footwell <laughs> as they drive through whilst giving it a little bit of a wax but bless the guys there i used to be able to occasionally go in and these are big birdie blokes working all day with overalls and boots and i know all the paraphernalia i come in wearing my little like lycra little bib shorts all covered in mud like hello mister would you clean my bite for me and then they're just there and they just take great pleasure 
and hosing me down as well, getting up against the wall. Have you ever used the proper industrial jet wash? It literally, that would take the skin off a chicken. It's just like... <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, that's one way around it, but I don't have that here, sadly, in the West Country. So what I'm trying to get at is I haven't been doing enough riding, just like you. So I really need to do that. I need some motivation. So any, any motivational tips for me? My number one motivational tip is listen to Emily because this is going to be a cracker. If you felt bad about the duration you rode over the entire Christmas period, you're about to feel a lot, lot worse about yourself, James, because Emily has put down some serious kilometers. So with that, let me welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Emily Chappelle. Emily, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. I love chatting with endurance athletes, like ultra endurance athletes, but I'm often left wondering how people find their way into endurance. I have some friends who are in triathlon and I was thinking, is it comparable? In triathlon, the sort of path people seem to take is they start out at sprint distance. They're not very good. So instead of thinking, you know what, I'll get a bit faster to go, no, you know what, I need a, I need an Olympic distance. And then they're not very good at that either. And then they do a half Ironman. And then they still suck at that, so they do an Ironman. But I think the tread into ultra cycling is slightly different because we see all types going into ultra cycling. What was your path into it? Well, my path into it was probably quite unconventional. So I was, well, I was a commuter in London. That's how I got started, really. Then I was a bike messenger for a few years. And that was really, I think, the big step. Uh, that was when I got used to just being on the bike all the time. Every day you get up and you go out on your bike. You don't really think about whether or not to do it. It's your job. You've kind of got to. And then from there, I did some long distance tours, which were much more traditional, you know, steel frame bike, four panniers, maybe 60 miles a day or something. But gradually, you know, I got bigger and bigger. And then racing was really just the next step after that. I'd done quite a lot of Audax as well. Um, but there are a lot of different ways into it. I think that's one of the interesting things. At the moment, ultra is still quite a new discipline. And people haven't quite stumbled on exactly what the right recipe is to be really good at it. So you get people coming in from a lot of different backgrounds. Yeah, it's hard to figure out the time crunched piece because a lot of people that go into ultra cycling, they're high achievers in other aspects of their life. And that doesn't normally leave a lot of available training time. So the problem then becomes, well, how do I train for a 2,000 plus kilometer event with six hours available each week to train? Yeah. And this is a question I, I get asked by people and I'm not very good at answering it because I, I've had quite an unconventional life. I have sort of ended up with a lifestyle where I do periods of work where I work very hard, like, you know, writing a book or something and then make a certain amount of money, not always that much, but enough to keep going for a bit and then go off and ride for a lot. Also, I've always put cycling first. Um, you know, the rest of my life is built around cycling. I don't look for where I can fit it into my life. I think about how I can organise my life to fit around doing big miles. So from that perspective, I'm not a very useful person to ask, but I'm a, an example, I guess, of one other way of doing it if you don't want to have a real life. So I'd, I'd sort of suggest that cycling almost sounds like it's a, it's a kind of oxygen for you. So it's so difficult to describe why it is you need to be breathing all the time if what you do is just breathe because that's just entirely natural for you and how it is you're such a good person at breathing because, again, that's just what you do. But I noticed you know, following you on Instagram and looking through what's been going on in your life over the last couple of months, you hit a real seeming, seemingly hitting a really high point personally following uh, Tour de France Femme to the first edition uh, or the first edition back, I should say, of the Tour de France uh, for women 
last year in the summer and doing that you know kind of concurrently with the professionals coming through so um riding down the the back of the planche de Belfield and riding some of the gravel stuff but then coming back to the uk it sounds rather like you've been having some difficulties with doing the very thing that makes ultra ultra which is doing distance getting the miles in actually being able to ride your bike again what's kind of going on there yeah this has been a huge challenge so Yes, I was doing that. I followed uh, Tour de France Femme and we were making a film for Canyon about it. And before that, I was actually leading a ride that followed the men's route one week before that race. So, I mean, I was completely exhausted anyway. I had thousands of miles in my legs. Before that, I was riding across Europe. But then during, during that period, I think I had COVID. And of course, I didn't have time to have COVID. So I more or less just, just kept going, which I think meant that I ended up with some sort of post-viral syndrome, which... Honestly, really, it's my one of my worst nightmares is not being able to cycle. And the really cruel thing about this was that the symptoms were being really tired and being really short of breath, which feels exactly the same as being unfit. So for someone whose life revolves around like cycling a lot and being fit, I go out for a ride and think, what's wrong with me? Um, this is terrible. I've lost it all. I'm not myself. And then think, well, I better just go harder because that's the way you get it back. And the times I realised that I was actually ill and there was something wrong were when going harder did not produce the results I wanted. It actually just made matters worse. So it was it was a f- about five months in all, almost six months, where I just had to learn to do things differently. It was a very sobering experience. And it did make me realise that, you know, I've been blithely going around for years saying, anyone can do this if they try hard enough. And actually, a lot of people can't. A lot of people have all sorts of limitations that they just have to patiently work within, like I've had to over the last few months. It's a funny one. I had COVID uh, last year and on the recovery from it, I got a very mild dose of COVID. I flew like symptoms for a day and then I was kind of, you know, a bit sniffly for a week. But for about two months afterwards, I'd be riding along at like, you know, 200 watts, like, you know, endurance rise uh, wattage but threshold heart rate. And it was a bizarre experience to the point that this wasn't six weeks in, seven weeks in, there was no sign of recovery. And then I'm starting to think, well, am I just now unfit because I've ridden so little or is this still the bug? And it messes with your head. But I went ultimately for a cardiac scan because I chatted to some world tour doctors and they recommended going in to just get a full cardiac screening. Uh, thankfully everything was all right but I had that period between the cardiac screening and getting the results where I was forced to consider well what if I can't ever exercise again and it was a weird feeling because so much of my identity has been wrapped up in sport for soccer and then cycling I found myself sitting in the waiting room and you know as someone who's already spent seven years in university I was looking back at PhD courses going well I could throw myself into academia and it was a really difficult place to be in so I can totally empathize with that period you were in. I think there are a lot of people as well who've been going through this so when I started to talk about it on social media loads loads of people got in touch a lot of ordinary people who had had similar experiences and it was often really helpful or they felt that my talking about it had helped them but actually quite a lot of the people who were you know looked like they were out there doing loads of ultra stuff and who I looked at enviously would then get in touch and say now mate my lungs have not been the same since this time last year because I think I had covid and it's a really much more widespread thing I think than we realize 
which I think is why it's quite useful that people are starting to discuss what's going on because it helps other people realise that it's a normal thing, sadly. Absolutely. But do you, do you see it, I mean, in terms of kind of like medical advice and things, and um, but also talking to your contemporaries and peers, does it feel like it's not just maybe things to do with um, complications through, um, for example, with you and Nancy, perhaps uh, with COVID, that, you know, ultra distance events in the way that they are currently organised, so things like Transcon and Silk Route and, you know, they're just cycling ones, things like Leadville, um, these incredible feats of human endurance have only really sort of been organised and codified and spun into proper big competitions with, you know, people pushing themselves because ultimately there is some kind of um, prize beyond just the satisfaction of doing it. It's now a career to be an ultra-distance athlete is what I'm getting at. Does that mean that we're now beginning to only learn what that does to people participating as ultra-distance athletes? Because there isn't a kind of precedent that went before. Are we in a kind of unknown sort of phase with how does the human body react to 10, 20 years of doing this stuff? Well, we just don't know. Um, and there has been to date quite limited research into this, simply because it's still very new. Very few people are doing it. And ultimately, it's easier to get funding to study something very widespread than it is to look at a bunch of loonies riding across a continent. There was a study, I think it was last year, Fiona Colbinger and some colleagues did um, some research into, I think it was into, uh, oh gosh, I was even part of this. I think it was into edema in long distance cyclists and things like that. And there, there are a few studies that are starting to happen. But of course, we won't know for a generation or two what the likely effects are. And I mean, I, I haven't actually raced much at all for about five years now. I still do loads and loads of very long rides, but I think I've stepped back from the the sharp end of it. And one of the complicated reasons for that was that I realised the the payoff was usually a bit too much for me. So I, I really love it. And much as I have reservations about the danger that people put themselves in, I love being out there and I love doing it and I love pushing myself hard. However, if you do that for two weeks and then you come home and you're clinically depressed for six weeks or you have an injury that you have to get over or you are just chronically fatigued for a really long time, which has also happened to me, you do start to think, is it really worth it for that two weeks? Would it not be better to do something pretty hardcore but not as hardcore with a bit more sleep and one or two rest days just so that I can do more of it because ultimately the thing I love is being on my bike and I mean I'm I'm 40 now maybe I'm mellowing out but the way I'm organizing my life now is to do as much as I possibly can but to also think about will I be able to carry on doing as much as I possibly can in six weeks and six years and you know when I'm 60. Do you think you can get the same highs from scale on a back? I talk to ultra endurance athletes all the time and one of the conversations is around how healthy is it and when I look at how healthy is it I'd be looking at it from a number of different aspects you know we could talk about the numb hands and fees and I'm sure we'll get onto that in a bit just a chronic fatigue which generally is like the week or month after a serious event but there's also the mental aspect of do you need to have these exceedingly higher highs all the time does the next event need to be more epic than the one preceding it or can you just like you're maybe advocating do slightly less hardcore events but have a longer viewpoint and say well doing a slightly easier event will allow me to do this through my 60 70th year well 
I had this problem a few years ago because I have a tendency to jump in at the deep end with things. So I got into commuting in London, had to become a bike messenger. That was like the most hardcore you could take it. And I got into long distance bike touring by means of setting out to cycle around the world. And then when I realised that that wasn't that hard, I decided to do cold weather stuff because that was a bigger challenge. So it was inevitable that I'd end up racing. And then within a couple of years of starting ultra racing, I'd won the Transcon. And I remember thinking in the, like, the final days of the race, when I was having the time of my life, how, what am I going to do next? How am I going to go bigger than this? Because I think for me, it, as well as the challenge, it's an element of curiosity. Like I had never done that sort of thing. I didn't know what would happen when I got to, you know, past 10 days on the bike virtually nonstop. And then once I found out, it does remove a bit of the incentive to keep going. Plus, I mean, you can't get bigger and bigger and bigger. You just, it's not sustainable. And I think the rewards diminish somewhat. So I think I have been turning this over for quite a while, wondering where I go next. And what I've started to notice is the huge amount of value that cycling adds to my life in all sorts of ways. And just how much I love being out there on the bike. So for example, this summer, before the Tour de France thing, I was riding across Europe um, because I had somewhere to be and thought I'd go there by bike. And just riding through the Alps, got to all these passes that I'd been over before and thought about the different memories I had there from last time, started to notice the wildlife around me and the flowers that I never had before. And thought, oh, this, this is giving me different windows into the world all the time. It continues to be a really valuable experience in ways that I hadn't anticipated. Plus, I'm stronger than ever. I'm fitter than ever. And I get I get to enjoy that in a way I, necess- I wouldn't necessarily if I was destroying my body every six months doing some big race. Myself and James chatted to Jack Ultracyclist, Jack Thompson on the podcast. And it's interesting. I uh, Jack's a, a good friend. And I look and I wonder, has Jack in the past 12 months has this just become the evolution of doing crazier and crazier things? So he's basically on the podcast, he talked to us about how he has like burnt his whole life down for this quest over 2022, which he's now finished, thankfully, to ride a million vertical meters over the course of 2022. But that meant riding like a crazy schedule, Jack. James, you might recall it better than I do. It was like he was doing Everest, Everest like every two days or something crazy. Everest once a week and then two and a half to 3,000 kilometer ascent rides every day. But he gave himself Sundays off every week. So, you know, there was always that. But that it's just insane. It's just insane. Sorry, go on, Anthony. Where's he going next year for that one? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, things like, I mean, things like that are just totally insane. But it's the, it is that kind of like ratchet thing. But I'm also always interested in you, you ratchet up and you do more and more kind of crazy things, testing yourself trying to see where, as you say, where you can go next. But then also, how do you sort of like ratchet down? So, I mean, taking um, your Transcon win, for example. So you won the Transcontinental race in 2016. Um, So that's something in the region of 3,800, 4,000 kilometers. Yeah, I think I was was just 20k short of 4,000, but I wasn't going to do any more. I mean, that's insane. And, you know, listeners, um, Emily did it in uh, just over 13 days. So you can you can do some maths there. I don't know how many hours you slept, probably not very many. But that is a, a serious physical endeavor. But also you're going over, you know, going through Switzerland, you're going over the Furka Pass, um, you're going over Paso Jao, you're going through um, Montenegro. So you're also seeing some amazing, amazing things. I'm getting feeling like probably your life on the road 
is much, much more exciting than any of our lives at home. So then when you go home, you've won it. That's great. But then you go home and you put your key in the door of your house and you open it up and I don't know who's there or who isn't there, um, but you're back to normality. How did you manage to kind of step down from there? Very badly. It's really hard going back um, because life on the road is not easy, but very, very simple. Um, for almost two weeks, my only job was just to keep moving forward or to sleep and eat in order to keep moving forward. I never really had to make any decision that didn't revolve around that. And everything else was subordinate to that. And then you finish and everyone tells you you're a hero. But of course, you're completely exhausted. You're a shadow of your former self. So you're listening to all this praise thinking, yeah, but I I mean, I could do that yesterday. But today I can barely get up the stairs. So you, you've got that going on. And then you go back to normal life, which is really complicated. You know, you've got deadlines and conflicting demands on your time that you're particularly unequal to in that moment. And you've got people and relationships to deal with and people are complicated and you have complex decisions and priorities to deal with and you are completely exhausted. Plus, you've just come from this massive high and this period where life was really easy. It's very hard. It's something that having done it a few times... I'm not saying I won't do it again because part of me will always want to, but being aware of that does become part of the decision. Do I really, really want to go away and do that to myself and then come back and pick up the reins? I rode uh, like a, just over two and a half thousand kilometers last year with a friend and we tried to do it in 10 days. We went from Biarritz up to Granada and then down to Girona. And uh, we had the bikes loaded and kind of some days slept on roundabouts, other days got some Airbnbs. But I was thinking about the structure of that. And as you're comparing the bikepacking to ordinary life, I wonder, is it the singular focus? Because you set out in the morning with a singular goal of get to a place, ride as many kilometers as I can or get to a destination. So you have a goal, then you have goal completed, and then you have the associated dopamine hit and satisfaction of completing that goal. And then you get up the next day and you rinse and repeat. And anything that happens along the way, like you break a chain, you have a puncture, instantly it's like, okay, this needs to get fixed so I can complete my goal. So you get all these ancillary dopamine hits all the way along. So there's a very nice sort of closure to each day. And then we get back to normal life and it's just chaotic. There's no closure to each day. There's no binary outcome. You can't win a day. That for me was really difficult to deal with. And I came home and it almost felt like the volume was turned down on normal life. And when I was racing seriously we used to call it the post-stage race blues and it's the first time i felt that since the aftermath of a six seven day stage race was the bike packing last year is that a similar experience Dean? you had yes very much though i would say that um i have had sometimes instead of that or sometimes somehow around the edges also the feeling of coming back from something like the transcontinental and just thinking i feel invincible now i mean i've just done that that's more than anyone will do that's more than i ever thought i would possibly be able to accomplish I mean stresses of life bring it on like the first time I did the race I didn't complete it I uh, stopped after eight or nine days still had done so much more than I thought I would and I went back to London and thought right I'm moving out of London moved to Wales and moving house as you know is very stressful and difficult and I just remember the stress just didn't really touch me I mean it was present and I was like I'm experiencing stress but it is nothing compared to what I've just done. And that was really nice. And that overall, once all the sort of the, the come downs melt away, that's one of the reasons that cycling has just become such a constant 
hit in my life because I just get that again and again. I mean, I used to be a very shy, retiring person. I was very, you know, I didn't really know much about the world. I was frightened of things. And just everything I've done has broadened and broadened and broadened me. And, you know, I can take things on now. Does that make you a really great friend to be around for advice or a terrible one? Do you have all of the worldly wisdom or do you not suffer fools gladly? So a friend comes to you and says, oh, I'm really struggling with this colleague at work. And you're just like, come on, sort yourself up, you know, person up, get over this. Try You try cycling up a, a 30 kilometer pass on a bike that weighs uh, as much as a teenage kid kind of thing. Um, do you have that sort of almost short shrift, I guess, with regular life sometimes because it seems so kind of basic compared to life on the road? I'd like to think I'm I'm a bit more sympathetic than that. I mean, you should ask people <laughs> other than me. Um, I, I also actually, I have quite a lot of respect for normal life because I do a lot less of it than most people. I mean, all this sort of like nine to five job business, I bow down. I would struggle with that. And I think it is one way in which my you know, whatever wisdom I have to offer is limited because it comes from the perspective of somebody who's, you know, tried to sidestep a lot of what people are dealing with. But I do, I'm still scared of everything I set out to do. I know it sounds bizarre, but even, you know, even going out for rides sometimes, I feel nervous and don't want to do it. And trips, you know, big rides and challenges. I know now that if I do the thing I'm scared of, I will stop being scared of it and I will get comfortable. And I always do. And that, I think, is sort of useful advice that I think I can give people. And, you know, the same goes for my tax return. It's not just <laughs> riding up Mont Ventoux. And it's, it's useful to learn that in a number of areas of your life. And then to say, look, it, I've proved this again and again. Whatever it is you're worried about, I promise it will get less worrying once you've done it. Do you draw on those bikepacking experiences when you're solving problems in real life? I'm thinking about that movie. Was it Matt Damon, The Martian? where they forget him on Mars and he's up there and he basically looks at it as a mathematical problem. So he's trying to find his way home and he has one great line on it. He said, you encounter a problem, you solve a problem. And if you solve enough problems, you get to go home. And I often wonder, is that line, is he actually talking about bikepacking? You have a problem, you solve a problem, you solve enough problems, you get to go to the finish line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's what life is, isn't it? Just, you know, one problem after another. Or, you know, one great sunrise after another, depending on how you, you like to look at it. Um, yeah, I, I increasingly do, actually. I've noticed silly things like, uh, usually if I'm bikepacking and everything's going wrong and I'm feeling terrible, very often the problem is that I need to eat something. And, you know, you stop, you have a snack, or you put on a layer or take off a layer, and suddenly everything gets much easier. I have discovered that this applies to real life as well. You know, if you're having a terrible day, it could be because you're sleep deprived, you're hungry, or you're too hot or cold or something. And it sounds ridiculously simple, but it's, you know, it has helped. But I think also, so I've recently taken up knitting, and now I'm constantly describing life in terms of knitting. And, you know, life is like knitting a glove, blah, 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 just like I used to do with bikepacking. So what I really think is that if you look at the hobbies you do and, you know, the ways that you kind of understand them that says more about you and the way you move through the world than necessarily that they are reflections of each other because I mean I'll give you the same advice for life and cycling and knitting and whatever else I think it's a useful way of getting to know yourself and how you approach things and how you solve your problems because it will be different for everyone I feel like knitting is a particularly difficult thing I have tried it 
I have relatives who do it. I have <laughs> witnessed them losing count of the row or the stitch that they're on and just how kind of infuriating that is. Almost as infuriating, I think, as trying to get a stubborn tubeless tyre off a particularly horrible rim. It's kind of, it's on that level. But I'm just thinking like you've done an awful lot, I'm guessing, of, of just self-taught kind of learning. There's been at least seven years by my maths, you know, since you did the Transcon for the first time in 2015. Obviously, you're riding before that up until now, seven going on, you know, eight years, really doing some like big things. How has, what, or more to the point, what has your learning taught you specifically? I'm wondering about kit. So, what did your bike look like when you first rocked up to do that big ride or maybe even the Transcon versus how has it evolved over time? And one thing I notice about your bike, Generally speaking, don't seem to have aero bars, which everyone in Ultra would seem to have. How's your bike setup evolved? Well, it continues to evolve, really, because every different race or event that I enter, there are slightly different demands or I've got different stuff I want to carry or I'm in a different mood or I'm trying something out. I have used aero bars maybe about half the time. And actually, the like the reason I didn't use them in uh, TCR 2016 was just that I could not figure out how to get all my bags on as well as the aero bars. And I like having a lot of stuff up front. I like to be able to eat as I'm going along and not stop. And because I couldn't get that to work, the bars were what I ditched, for better or for worse. Um, I hadn't really got the hang of them by that point anyway. But had I used them, I probably would have not had such sore hands by the end of it. That said, I mean, everything was sore by the end of it. So I'd have had sore elbows instead. But I have used them for other long rides. I did a four-day to jog a few years ago with Jenny Graham and Hugh Oliver, and we were all falling asleep on our aero bars all the way. So yeah, that that really varies. And I've not done anything recently that I would use them for, but I still got them. You know, they will they will make a comeback at some point. A lot of it is, you know, what, whatever my current fad is, or I have just gradually tweaked my system. So I've figured out that that thing works better there. We hear about ketones in the pro peloton, but what are they? According to experts at HVMN, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. Studies show that ketones are 28% more efficient than glucose, making them a super efficient fuel source for your long rides and races. These benefits led HVMN to create Ketone IQ, which is a drinkable ketone designed to support energy, focus and endurance. It's developed alongside the US military and Ketone IQ is one of the most powerful ketone supplements on the market. It's designed to elevate your ketone levels for up to four hours, which is much longer than other products. Plus, it's caffeine-free, it's compliant with the World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines, and that's a major win for athletes. Ketone IQ shots are the best way to get your ketones on the go. What I love about them is they're portable and they fit so perfectly and neatly in my jersey pocket during a ride. So visit hvmn.com and use promo code cyclist at the checkout to save 20%. And to learn more about achieving your ultimate metabolic potential, subscribe to HVMN's podcast, Health Via Modern Nutrition, which is hosted by Dr. Lat Mansour. That's on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. So visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to save 20%. A good friend once told me, race on the road and you train on the turbo. But is the turbo trainer the best tool for the job these days? Well, the Watt Bike Adam is a dedicated smart bike to make indoor training more engaging and fun. It's really convenient so you get the most out of your indoor miles. 
no switching bikes, wearing down bike components or slipping gears. The Atom is a simply a plug and play setup with all the data you need to get the most out of your training. It has a smaller footprint than a full turbo setup, so it fits in even the most compact spaces. The first Watt bike was developed alongside British Cycling and was a crucial tool for Team GB's success at the 2008 Olympics, helping to identify talent and quantify it with immense accuracy for training. And the Watt Bike Atom Smart Bike builds on that original Watt Bike platform to bring industry-leading accuracy and intelligent pedaling analysis and training. These together combine to help riders develop not just power and stamina, but pedaling efficiency too. I love its real-world feel, right down to the Atom's proper-feeling gear shifters. Plus, I can connect it to my favorite training apps like Zwift or just plug-and-play with Watt Bike's free workout and training plan platform, the Watt Bike Hub app. So claim £250 off the Watt Bike Atom today with code CYCLIST250 and apply that at checkout on wattbike.com. That's CYCLIST250 applied at the checkout on wattbike.com. Emily, just take a little bit of a sharp left turn and talk about body image and what a cyclist should look like. So you get to the finish line of the transcontinental race, you're presented with the jersey. Talk me through your emotional state and what's happening here. Ah, well, this was, um, I've only recently sort of really recalled this story and told it publicly. So I, while I was racing, I'm sure I wouldn't be alone in this. I was daydreaming about winning and, you know, I was daydreaming about winning and maybe a helicopter flies me back to London. The Queen greets me (laughs) and like the entire town had come out to clap me in. I had a lot of time and I have a big imagination. But one of the things I really, really was kind of, you know, clinging on to was this idea of the winner's jersey. Because I'd seen the pictures from previous years and they would get a couple of jerseys, one for the first man and one for the first woman from the sponsor and they would somehow find somewhere where they could get the name and the the days, hours and seconds, minutes that the person had taken. And there'd be this kind of, you know, award ceremony. And the jersey is all you get. You know, there's no big money prize or anything. You just get a jersey and you get to stand next to Christoph Alhert in his jersey. And that was that was my dream. And I started to realise I was actually going to win. And like the jersey was it. You know, there would be a photo of me in the winner's jersey on the Internet. So we had this, there was a party a couple of days after I got in for all the people who'd finished and they had, well, they had the presentation and I went up to the front and took my jersey and put it on and it was too small and it was, it was terrible. And bear in mind, I'm completely exhausted at this stage. So, I mean, you know, I dropped my beer, it's a disaster. So this really felt like the end of the world. And I was just so embarrassed because I felt I'd proved myself by, you know, wow, you know, the fat kid who used to skip PE has won a race across Europe. And then I got there. It was as though they'd said to me, you're you're not right. You should be smaller if you're here on the podium. And I know it's absurd, but I started thinking I, I shouldn't have won. I shouldn't be here. Like the woman in second place, she's not even in yet, but she would look better in this jersey. What a shame it was me. How embarrassing for the race. How embarrassing for the sponsors. And actually like what was going on in my head then was completely wrong. I had won the race, you know, I deserve to be there. I belong there. The reason I'm the size I am is partly because that's how I'm built and partly because I'm really strong and I had ridden over all those mountains and I had got there in 13 days. And actually, you know, the sponsor should have provided a variety of jerseys or something. 
But that was that was not what went through my head at the time. And this, where do you think that assumption came from? That a winner of a race is a certain size. Well, the 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 short answer is really all of cycling culture and all of culture beyond it as well. I mean, broadly, culture tells us that the smaller we are, the more valid we are, especially as women, but often as men too. And in cycling particularly, especially these days, cyclists are encouraged to be very, very, very small. And anyone who takes themselves seriously will be thinking about their power to weight ratio. I have met so many. I mean, it's normal. I think it's the majority of people I meet talk about wanting to be smaller, trying to be smaller, trying to be lighter, being on diets and things like that. And I mean, even if I, you know, I, by the end of each summer, I'm usually about as small as I get. I don't get very small. I've got quite a big build and I have big muscles. I'm just quite a stocky person. And I mean, I now realise that this is all, I mean, I don't know how much I can swear on this, but it's all bollocks. But I have had uh, years and years and years of just thinking, no, 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 but I mean, no matter how many races I win, I'm still not really a cyclist. I mean, look at me. And I've had my fair share of meeting people on rides who've given me weight loss advice and things like that, including rides that I was leading. So it's just, you're being told all the time, directly, indirectly, by people, by pictures you see, by all the cycling brands who just show models in the smaller sizes. And that's how the world's supposed to look, you think. And then you look at yourself and think, oh, well, I'm wrong then. And I'm all right now because I've just had this conversation with myself again and again and reminded myself constantly that it is bollocks. Let's look at the way my body performs, how strong it is, what it does. And perhaps we change the world rather than we try and change our bodies. But it is, it's so hard for some people. And I don't know how I haven't escaped having eating disorders. Um, A lot of people weren't as lucky as me. And what a massive waste of time and energy and potential. Absolutely. I'm totally with you. It's absolute bollocks. Yes, you can say that and also call it out for what it is. And I wish there was a way kind of around it. And I'm sure there is. But when I get to thinking about it, with cycling, particularly wider society is is very different, because there's so many other kind of like variables that we can kind of unpick and undo. Whereas unfortunately, with cycling, there is just the kind of mathematics of if you're powerful and light, then you're faster than someone who is heavier at the same power. How do we Ultimately, I'm you know, talking for we, myself, amateurs, how do we get away from that whilst at the same time try to do the sport to the best of our ability, which is part of the nature of sport in a sense? I know that sport is also many other things too. It's participation, it's camaraderie, um, but it's also yeah, physically pushing yourself. So you're, you're naturally predisposed to wanting to go go faster really with cycling. And the easiest way to go faster is to get lighter which is just a horrible truth about it. How do we get away from that? Oh, but is it? Yeah, even to jump in, Emily, before you do, I would even push back on it a little bit, James, and say, like, this whiffed culture of making power to weight the only variable. Mm. Like, Emily has almost, by finishing first, falsified the assumption that you need to be small to finish first because she's finished first at her shape. Like, is a rider who can do... 400 watts and that's you know 4.8 watts per kilogram is going to be a faster rider than somebody who can do 300 watts but 4.9 watts per kilogram coefficient of frontal drag matters a lot as well like how fast you can move through the air and absolute power up to a point is a lot more important than relative power to weight 
And I'm I'm less qualified to talk about this side of it because I, I have not done structured training. I don't know my power to weight ratio. I don't really know my weight. I very rarely weigh myself. But I think one of the, the disadvantages with focusing on weight too much as a metric is that it ends up dragging everything else down. People end up chasing their weight down and down and down and down and losing all their power and losing all their resilience and ruining their health and ruining their metabolism. And there's something I'm seeing a lot at the moment in the last sort of year, 18 months. I know you're aware of Red S, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. Um, More and more women I know are realising they have it. What often happens, you know, among female amateur athletes I know, they're pretty serious. They decide to stop using hormonal contraception. And they suddenly realise that they don't have a menstrual cycle anymore because they've been systematically underfueling for years and years and years, without often without even knowing, because just the general expectation for how much a woman eats is so low. I always thought that I was just an incredibly greedy person who ate loads. Actually, I think I'm getting it right. I eat thousands of calories a day and it seems, I know, I'm not obese. It seems to work okay. I think a lot of people are underfueling. And over many, many years they might be really fast on the bike and they might sometimes even get uphill ahead of me. But over the course of their athletic career and over the course of their reproductive lifetime and their lifetime in general, their power will eventually go down, their health will go down, they'll end up with osteoporosis, they'll end up with fertility problems. And you have to look at the whole person. I mean, I I don't think pro sport is really a very healthy atmosphere for a lot of people. And it's not something we should be aspiring to, especially if we're not professional athletes. James, this kind of builds on the conversation we had with performance chef Alan Murchison, where we were talking about what is success and what does that look like? Because if you win the race, but to win the race, you have a very bad relationship with food, you have body confidence issues, esteem issues, are you better off not winning the race and finishing in the pack, but having a very healthy relationship with all those? We define success very narrowly as the first person to cross the finish line, but that can't be true. It can't be success no matter what. It has to be success within this given set of parameters that we're happy to operate within. Yeah, so, I mean, probably more throwing that towards um, you, Emily, in terms of what you make of that. But yeah, my two senses, I just wouldn't want to sacrifice winning for so many other I'd rather be a jack of all trades than um, a very yeah monkish winner of a few bike rides well that's the thing I mean I I am very clear on this because I have (laughs) I actually do have more to my life than cycling and also more to my life than wanting to just you know win a race on a particular day because I also want to be out on my bike the next day and the next day but I I want to live a long and happy life. I've got a lot of other things I want to do. And I also really value my mental health and generally enjoying my life. And I know that all of that will be compromised if I decided I wanted to start beating enemy cup hills. <laughs> I think also it's tricky. It is tricky. It's a grey area because, I mean, I love watching people winning the Tour de France. I've been doing it all my life. It's great. You know, I can take you like you know, step by step through some amazing hill climbs and final sprints that I've watched again and again. Like, I I absolutely love it. However, if you look at the biographies of a lot of the riders who have, I mean, I could give you so many names. A lot of them have died young. A lot of them have had terrible problems in their life following their retirement. A lot of them now actually are starting to talk about the terrible problems they've had and about how they're resolving them and how they're trying to help other people and generally improve things. 
this does not make me think I want to do this. And I think, fine, you know, I am always going to want to watch people winning the Tour de France, but I'm also going to try and remember, yes, but their life isn't perfect. They sacrificed a lot for this. And I would not want to. And I won't take them as a role model very far. I will remember them, you know, winning on Alpe d'Huez when I'm winning on Swain's Lane or whatever. I've never won anything on Swain's Lane, but in my head. (laughs) But I'm not going to then think, I need to follow their lifestyle in order to do that. Emily, what's your relationship with food now? And presupposing from this chat that it is quite a healthy one, how do you take that attitude and encourage more, specifically female riders, to adopt your viewpoint on it? (sighs) Again, I feel very unqualified to talk about this, partly because I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian or any sort of professional, and partly because I think I've been lucky just through combination of circumstances in my life. I have never had a perfect relationship with food or my body, but I've worked very hard to get it to where it is. And I know it's very easy for me to hand out advice and very difficult for people who have not had the luck I have to take it. My basic attitude to food is I eat very intuitively. So I sometimes eat a lot and I sometimes eat a lot less depending on what I I feel I need and want. I've got a thing where I try and eat, I think um, I think what Tim Spector has recommended is something like 35 different plants per week. Um, and I'm trying to go for 50. The thing I like about this is that it's a number to aim for, which I am very wary of because I, I once went on a calorie control diet for a little while. And if you give me numbers, I try and win at them, which is a terrible thing to do with something like your diet. But actually aiming for more than 35 plants is great because all you achieve is a very, very balanced diet. Very difficult to have an unhealthy diet if you're including that many plants. So that is working for me. But again, you talk about things like this and people think they might want to emulate them. That might not work for someone else whose obsessive tendencies were different or you know who had other things they bring into the mix. And also... I really like eating. Um, I really enjoy it. I love food. And I love that eating is actually a normal part of my life that I have to do several times a day. What a joy. I'm very keen to protect that and not mess with it. Do you uh, do you sprout? I had Doug Evans on the Roadman podcast and he is obsessed with sprouting. And I have the book at home. I've started collecting the paraphernalia, but I haven't pulled the switch on it. But a couple of listeners to my show have sent in photos of them sprouting and they've turned their kitchens into like outdoor gardens it's insane can you tell me what's sprouting i'm assuming it's growing stuff inside yeah it's like you're emily you're probably better qualified to speak on what sprouting is than me uh well i'm not sure but i have i mean i've sprouted mung beans in the past is this what we're talking about exactly yeah but i was under the impression there was mung beans and maybe two or three other types of seeds you could sprout it turns out there's thousands you can sprout. And Doug Evans is getting a crazy amount of his daily caloric intake from sprouted stuff. Sounds great, yeah. I mean, sprouting, fermenting, anything you can do, really. I like this approach because it kind of cultivates an abundance mentality and like, you know, let's do more of this and have fun with it. And yeah, I think that that really works for me. And also, you know, when, when I'm doing something like an Audax, you just have to eat as much of everything as possible. And that's, that's really nice. And so finally, looking ahead to uh, to this year, we're now, I keep, I keep saying next year, 2023, but it's not. We are in the future, ladies and gentlemen. But looking um, <laughs> ahead to the summer and, the, you know, hoping that the kind of post-viral fatigue recovery um, continues and, you, you know, you get back to the place that you want to be. 
what are you going to do with that with that fitness and that time as the days get longer and things like the Tour de France and Tour de France Femme come around for a second time? Well, I'm basically just going to cycle a lot. So I'm Again, this summer, I'll be leading Le Loop, which is the ride that follows the Tour de France route for the, the men's Tour de France route one week ahead. And that's, I mean, it's, it's booked up now, but anyone can enter it if they, they get their act together quickly. And in order to be able to ride the entire men's Tour de France route, I will have to get very fit. So I will do that by recceing quite a lot of the route. So I'm going out to Bilbao in early April and I'll do the stages there and then ride back via quite a lot of France. And I think that will be fun. And then what happens in a good year after I do the, the Tour de France one week ahead, that, that does use up my summer. So I don't get to do any other events in the summer because I'm knackered afterwards. But then I tend to recover in September and October. And I have a really nice couple of months of fitness where I've just, you know, I've been going at it all summer. Then I've had a bit of a rest. Then I get to go and do something fun. And there's a few events I've got my eye on and a few races I've got my eye on, though I might take my eye off them. I haven't decided. I'm trying to avoid flying. So whatever I do will be in the UK or in Europe. And I quite like to see a bit more of Eastern Europe. So that might be that might be what I get up to. Emily, I've really enjoyed this chat, specifically talk about sprouting. I think we could have a different gardening podcast we could maybe get you as a guest on. But in the interim, thanks for joining us on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, James, are you motivated after chatting with Emily to take up the pursuit of ultra distance? I feel like we could have good fun. Like I could rope you into a Badlands or something this year and just really whatever it is about that human nature of wanting to see somebody coming apart and the comedy that's associated with that. I think we could recreate that in Badlands. I'm not sure if that's entirely the right motivation for you wanting me along to Badlands. But yes, it can be, you know, there's Mr. Schadenfreude right there. It can be enjoyable to see other people come apart. Sometimes it can be enjoyable to encourage people, Anthony, to do things that are be- normally beyond them without the help of a friend. So yeah, I'll come and do Badlands with you, but I might need a little bit of a push. My problem with endurance stuff, because I often thought, yeah, you know, I'd love to do the Transcon. That'd be great. Imagine saying, I've done that to your mates. It's the fact that you have to get up and do it again the next day. I'm no good at going kind of multiple days without very good sleep. But also, like you touched upon in the interview, I need, I crave the binariness of cycling that happens within a day. So you start and you finish and you, you've got closure by the end of the day. Not, And I've not even you know broken the back of it and I've already done a thousand kilometers and I've got to keep going. Have you dipped your toe into any of them? Into, well, I've done multiple, no, I mean, not the proper ultra endurance. I've done um, like multi-day events, I suppose you call them, but they've all been quite nice, really. They're not really pushing you to the limits and worst case scenario, you've got ride captains, they keep everyone going, they keep you pushing along. So that's not, it's totally not the same. So I've never tested myself, but also I've kind of just lacked the belief, I think, that I could actually do it. I think those ones are slightly, I think what makes them edgy is the fact that they could go wrong. Yeah. And I rode even Rift last year at Gravel Race. It's by no means ultra distance, but it's 200 kilometers on the gravel. So for most middle of the road riders, you're looking at probably around 10 hours in the saddle. But I wonder what it is, the appeal of an event like that, the danger elements. You're so far out there. There's very few marshals in any of these events just because of how remote they are. There is potential for something to go wrong. You would touch wood and hope that it doesn't go wrong. But 
it's different to road or it's different to a sportif or going to do a hot route where it's it's very safe. And I wonder, do we crave a little bit of danger in our lives now because they've become so safe? Yeah, I'm sure that is true. And I'm sure that whether we realize it or not, there are certain things that just appear to us as just being that much more special because they have a side element of danger. I, you haven't gone to do it because it's dangerous, but for whatever reason, you know that at the end of it, that was that was just a better story. That was a better experience because you tried a bit closer to the wire of, hang on a second, this could go wrong. So yeah, I mean, our lives are way too... Ever since we made fitted sheets and you know, <laughs> that our lives became too comfortable. So yes, we are definitely, definitely craving danger. That is the appeal. And I suspect as well, that's the appeal of you know, the audience and the, the fan base for these things. It's living vicariously through people like Emily. I struggle even with gravel racing or gravel riding. There's a friend of mine and I ride with him quite a bit and he's an ex-pro bike rider and the two of us were up in Wicklow, which is the mountains, uh, you know, 10, 20 kilometers outside Dublin doing a gravel ride. And on this occasion, an older friend of ours had sort of pleaded to tag along to figure out the routes. He's maybe 55 years old, not in brilliant shape. It's quite difficult terrain with a couple of experienced riders. But at one point, we're way ahead of him. We go back and see what's up. We double back and he's on the ground and he says, I have chest pains. And we were just looking at each other going like, you wouldn't get a helicopter into this place. It's 90 minutes to two hours from the nearest road. We're like, how do you deal with that? Our solution, we just thought we'd roll him off the edge of the cliff and just tell his wife that he never turned up. <laughs> we didn't come up with anything more advanced than that. Thankfully, it was chest pains because he'd crashed and hit his chest on a rock and it wasn't cardiac. But it got me wondering, do we just crave that? And I'm not sure if you do. Maybe I do a little. Emily does a lot. It's hard to know. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say absolutely yes. And kind of, you know, bringing it back to something else that everyone was talking about there, the whole kind of like body image and where that comes from, that comes from trying to style ourselves on the people that we idolize and the people that we idolize for better or worse, often, you know, for a lot of people, those are athletes and we idolize the ones that are pushing themselves to extremes. And why is that? Well, yes, it's probably because we all kind of caught a bit more danger and a bit more excitement in our lives. So you want to see that being played out in sport. But yeah, when it comes to you, and that, you know, that is a common theme amongst all cyclists, isn't it? Is that, you know, is souffrance is just suffering. And I know that we've tried to push away from that a little bit. And Rafa's stopped doing so many black and white rainy shots of people looking sort of like hard, but a bit upset. But cycling at its core does seem to attract people that want to kind of break themselves. I've never really understood why. And like you say there, there is a certain way to look. And I think that's a, a nice place to end this with a quote from the great philosopher from Fight Club, Tyler Durden, who said, we spend our lives packed into a gym trying to look like how Calvin Klein said we should look. There we go. Thanks for joining us, folks. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. His name is Tyler Durden. <laughs> This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ.